So Mark 2, chapter 1, sorry, Mark 2, verse 1 to 12. This is a Sunday school classic, isn't it? If you've grown up at a church, you know this one and you know it well. We've probably all heard this. We've possibly even taught on this. And I bet you if you grew up at a church, you've coloured in a sheet with a man being lowered through a roof at some point in your life. But as you read this passage, thank you, that's a bit better. As you read this passage, you've got to start to think to yourself, what is the lesson within this passage? Is it that Jesus can forgive? Yes. But isn't it also that Jesus has the power to heal? Yes. Well, what about that Jesus was smarter than the leaders and teachers of the day? Yes. In a sense, it was. So which one is it? What is the lesson of this passage? Well, this passage is like an ogre or an onion. It has layers. For those of you who've seen Shrek, you'll understand what I mean. But to truly grasp this passage, and really what God has laid on my heart for this morning, we need to look at some questions. Some questions which Dav has been using in the last few weeks, and we all have, and he's actually used this morning already when we spoke to, he spoke to the children. The questions are, as we go through Mark, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what's involved in following him? Now we're going to look at all of those, but the final question in particular. And in doing so, I'm going to take us through a few different roles or characters within the, the passage here. And I'm going to ask you, which one of those characters are you? So hopefully this now works. So who is Jesus and why did he come? Now I'm cheating here because I'm putting questions one and two together, but... It makes sense, trust me. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Well, the passage gives us a huge amount in answer to both of those questions. There's some really, really obvious answers in here, isn't there? But there's a few you have to dig to find. So firstly, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a famous and authoritative, powerful teacher. If you look at verses 1 and 2... A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Jesus was a big, big thing. We saw that at the end of the previous chapter, he'd healed someone from leprosy. And now he wasn't actually able to go anywhere without being recognised. He was a celebrity. And he wasn't the sort of celebrity that gets asked to turn on Bracknell Town Centre's Christmas lights, was he? He was a real celebrity. He was someone who could draw a crowd without ever using a publicist, without using Twitter, without the media being involved. In an age where a letter or word of mouth was the only way to spread the word about someone Everyone seemed to know who he was and that he was something special. Now you can argue it's because of his miracles that people saw that he was something special. You could argue that his fame was really down to the fact that people just wanted to see the magic tricks he could do. But if you look at verse 2, it says that he preached to them. 
And that's before we hear anything about any healing in this passage specifically. Verse 2 also says there was no room to stand and listen to him. There was no room inside this building and there was no room even outside the door to stand and listen. And so that suggests that those who were gathered and hearing what Jesus had to say, they hadn't wandered away. They hadn't come and looked and seen that there was no magic tricks going on and thought, I'll leave it. I'll go. These two verses suggest that Jesus was and is a powerful and authoritative teacher. And one that we'll see later in the passage actually captured the attention of the teachers of the law of that day. What else does the passage teach us about Jesus? Well, verses 5 to 7 tell us something absolutely mind-blowing when you think about it. They show us that Jesus is God. If you were listening to the children's talk, which we all should have been, Dave already talked about this. Jesus is God. And the first clue we see of this is actually in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's a bit odd, isn't it, for a man of 30, or you know, somewhere between 30 and 33, to have called another grown man son, isn't it? Jesus wasn't from parts of London where that might be used as a colloquial term. And clearly the age gap between Jesus and this man, who must have been a grown man from what we see the evidence of him, he couldn't call him son. It just wouldn't be right. It would be like me calling one of the men here son. It would be a bit patronising actually, wouldn't it? So why did Jesus call him son? Well, Jesus has a, a reason to call this young man or this man son. Jesus calls him son because he is from the father and he is of the father. If we go to the very start of John, John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word. The word refers to Jesus here. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Who is Jesus? He is God. And because of that we see something else about Jesus in verse 7. Verse 7 says... Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's at this point in my my tiny mind, I want Jesus to almost turn to the Jewish leaders of the day, these teachers sitting in the room, and say, our survey said, ding! As it would do in family fortunes, because yes, you'd hit the nail on the head. Who can forgive but God? No one. So who is this man? He is God. He is God and he does therefore have the authority to forgive sins. Not even the high priest within the Jewish law could forgive sins. He was only allowed to make atonement for sins, but he had no power to forgive. So this was a bold, bold claim for Jesus to make. But as we see later in this passage... He has the power to back these claims. 
What else do we see about who Jesus is? Well, we see he is the son of man. Verse 10, Jesus says, But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why is that important? That Jesus was the son of man. You know, everyone in this room is the son of a man. That's a biological fundamental. We're all the sons, or daughters, sorry. <laughs> We're all the children of a man somewhere, in some way. But this wasn't Jesus saying, I am flesh and blood. I had a father on earth. This is him saying, I am the son of man with a capital S and a capital M. Jesus was saying, I'm the one referred to in Daniel 7 verse 13. Daniel 7 verse 13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus was telling him, telling those people on that day that he was the one that God had given authority and dominion. And he was the one that every nation will one day worship. That is a seriously bold claim to make. If I told you this morning that I'd been given sovereign dominion over all and that I was the promised Messiah, would you believe me? Good, I'm glad a lot of you are shaking your head. I also hope that not only would you not believe me, but at least one of the elders would rugby tackle me off this stage. Because he dabs twitching slightly. But if I told you that I had all this power and dominion, and then I said to a lame man, in my own authority, get up and walk. And that lame man stood up, picked up the mat or whatever he'd been lying on, and walked. You might not think I'm the Messiah, but you'd start to question it, wouldn't you? You'd start to think there's something more going on here. And that's what Jesus did. And the last answer to that question of who is Jesus in these verses comes from verse 11. What we've just talked about. I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home, Jesus says. Jesus is a healer. Just consider for a moment. I have huge, huge respect for medical staff, for doctors, for people who actually work in the medical profession. But there's not a single doctor, professor, surgeon in the world who can heal you. Doctors can prescribe drugs, can prescribe treatments, they can prescribe uh, rest. They can get your body to a state where it repairs itself in the most efficient way. But there's not a doctor in the world who can heal you. Yeah, they can bypass your heart, they can bypass bits of your body that aren't working, but they cannot heal you. Jesus shows here that he can, that he is a healer. And he does have the power to physically heal someone. But he also shows 
that he has the power to heal spiritually. And in reality, that's what he was showing in this example. That he can heal spiritually by forgiving. And it's interesting to notice, actually, isn't it? That Jesus deals with the spiritual healing first. In verse 5, he forgives. In verse 11, he heals. Which nicely leads us on to the second of the two questions I've combined Why did Jesus come to this earth? If he is this powerful, authoritative teacher who can heal and forgive because he is God, then what was he doing amongst these humans on earth? Well, actually, in answering the first question, we answer the second question. Verse 2 tells us, yes, that he was a teacher. And so he came to teach. He came to preach the good news about God's own rescue plan. And we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus taught so many times. He taught large crowds. He taught his twelve. He taught his inner circle. He spent the time with Nicodemus teaching almost one-on-one, didn't he? Jesus taught. He came to teach about God's grace. But more than that, Jesus also came to be God's grace. In this passage, Jesus not only shows that he has the authority to forgive, but he actually forgives someone. Now there's a difference, isn't there, between having the power to do something and actually doing it. And Jesus did. Ultimately, he knew that in order to save us, he had to see justice fulfilled. And that's why he allowed himself to be captured, to be wrongly tried by sinful men. That's why he allowed himself to be beaten and why he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, to be punished as a criminal. John reminds us of this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. The verse says, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and no sin is in him. Jesus came to take away the sins of those that trust in him and repent and believe in him as their Lord and Saviour. Jesus didn't just come to teach. Jesus came to be merciful and to give a hope to an undeserving world. But there's another reason also that Jesus came to his earth, this earth. Again, we see in this passage this last reason. And I wonder if you spotted it, because actually, it's a bit of a throwaway comment at the end. Look again at verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. They praised God when they saw this miracle. Now, that verse isn't just included in the Bible, is it, to give a nice little ending to that passage. It's not a filler. There's nothing in the Bible that is a filler. There's a reason that verse is there. It tells us that what Jesus did brought glory and praise to the Lord God Almighty. And that Jesus had that in mind as he came to this earth. In fact, Jesus himself tells us this. In John 12, verse 27, Jesus is speaking 
And he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It was for this very reason I came. I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Despite being in anguish in that verse, Jesus shows that one of his aims was to glorify God. And even if that meant pain and trouble for himself. So why did Jesus come to this earth? He came to teach of the good news of the grace of God. He came to make that grace possible. And he came to glorify God in man's sight. We can learn a huge amount about Jesus just from those two questions in this one passage. And actually, I'd hope that some of those things we know. I'd hope that some of those things we're just being reminded or refreshed of. But then we come to the third question. What's involved in following Jesus? And I believe to really understand that, we have to look at the other characters in this story. Because the answer is different depending on which character you look at. So let's look at four characters within this story. And I hope you'll identify with at least one of them as we go through. So what is involved in following Jesus? Well, the first group we look at is the assembled crowd. Again, we'd heard that they'd heard amazing things about Jesus. And they were fascinated enough to come and pack out this building. And they got to see something quite incredible that day. And it's astounding. And the crowd would have been amazed. It would have been an absolute shock to them. But we don't really know much else about this crowd, do we? Other than the fact that they were there. They were there in big numbers. They were there because of Jesus' fame. And they'd never seen anything like what they witnessed that day. What we definitely don't know about this crowd is what impact that had on their lives. Did the message that Jesus taught actually change their lives? Is that in there? No. We know they were amazed, but that's it. We don't know what happened next for each of them. But one thing we do know is that just understanding that Jesus is powerful, just being amazed by what he can do, is not enough. This might sound like a very harsh verse to quote at this point, but if you look at James 2 verse 19, we're told that even the demons believe and they shudder. Even the demons believe that Jesus is powerful and they can sit in awe of him. But they have not received his grace. And there are people like this, aren't there? People who can turn up to a church service. They can be amazed by the love of Christ. They can be amazed by the atmosphere. They can be amazed by the awesomeness of the Lord God. But if that is where their experience of God, if that's where their relationship stops, they've got a problem. Because amazement with God doesn't equal salvation. Salvation itself comes from admitting that we are sinners, that we cannot earn our way back to the favour of our perfectly holy God, except by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to save us from our sins through the blood shed upon the cross. We can't just sit amazed. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Maybe you know people like this crowd. There are a lot of people out there who like the idea of church, aren't they? They like the idea of the awesome, loving God and they're happy to sit in the crowd quietly. They're happy to listen to the good stuff but not worry about the fact that they need to be made right. They don't want to be convicted of their own sins. They don't see that they need, as we see in Romans 12 verse 2, that they need their minds, their lives to be transformed and renewed. Maybe you don't know people like this. But perhaps, as I talk about the story of the rich man in Mark 10 from verse 17, perhaps that prods your heart. See, the rich man in Mark 10 verse 17, he appears to be doing the right things. He calls Jesus good teacher and he falls to his knees before the Lord. Those are good signs. And he claims to have kept all of the commandments of the law. But then in verse 21 of Mark 10, Jesus challenges him. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And look at the man's reaction. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This man looked like he was doing everything right. But he hadn't placed and perhaps he could never place Jesus above his wealth, above everything else. Perhaps like this crowd in our passage, the rich man saw something good, but he wasn't willing to go any further with it. He could only be a spectator. So again I ask, are you part of this crowd? Do you hesitate to accept that you need Jesus and need to let him into your life as master and as Lord? And if so, the question you really need to ask yourself is, do you want to stay on the sidelines forever? The next character we need to look at in this account is the lame man himself. And again... We actually know very little about this man. We know that he was, well, we know he was lame. We know he was a grown man because it took four men to carry him. And we know he had faith. And those few facts alone suggest something. They suggest that this man knew he had absolutely no earthly hope of beating his affliction. They suggest that he knew in Jesus there was a hope of being healed. Bear in mind, Jesus had healed already. And that suggests that this man had enough faith that Jesus could do this for him. Essentially, this man knew that Jesus was his only hope. Are you this character in the story? For all of your sakes... For all of our sakes, I hope we are. Because this is actually the story of every single true Christian. You see, our predicament was dire. 
In fact, it was worse than the one that this man faced. Because as Romans 3 verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our lives, our eternal lives, were paralysed by sin. We had no earthly hope of beating our sin. Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're no longer perfect and that means we can no longer by our own strength stand in the presence of the Almighty One. But we also know that we have a hope in Jesus. Because if we look at John 3 and verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God gave us hope by sending his son. And if you're like the lame man in this story, you've recognised these facts. And you have faith that Jesus will indeed save you. You see, the lame man knew he needed Jesus because he had no other hope. And so he put himself at Jesus' mercy and he accepted Jesus' grace. And look what happened. In the blink of an eye. He goes from being a man whose limbs probably were causing him untold pain and couldn't be moved to a man who could bend down, or stand up, should I say, and then bend down to pick up a mat and then walk through a crowd of people that he couldn't get through and leave. That doesn't happen. That's incredible. And without Jesus in the equation, that's an irrens... impossible (laughs) irreconcilable is the word I'm trying to read it's an impossible change it's an impossible difference and it's the same for us if we identify with the lame man there is an irreconcilable difference between where we were and where we have come to Ephesians 2 talks about the fact that we were dead in our transgressions in verse 1. But Ephesians 2 verse 5 says that we are now alive in Christ. That's more than a lame man walking. That's death to life because of Jesus. And so this is why I hope if you're looking for a character in the story to identify with, you go for the lame man. But if you identify more with the crowd of the two characters we've looked at so far, then the good news is, all you have to do is come to Christ. All you have to do is have the same realisation the lame man did, and put your faith in Jesus, and then you'll never have to marvel at the miracles from the sidelines. Because you will be a miracle of grace. But there's still two other characters I want to look at, or groups of characters, should I say. And maybe you do identify with these as well. (coughs) Our next group is the teachers of the law. Now again, what do we know about the teachers of the law from this passage? If we look back at verse 6, it says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? 
So what do we know about the teachers of the law? Well, firstly, we know they were there. Secondly, we know they were legalistic. And we also know that although they had these legalistic thoughts, they actually didn't have the bravery to voice them, did they? Now, I would hope and I would guess that no one here really wants to identify with the teachers of the law in this passage. Because if you're being harsh, you can say they came across as faithless and judgmental. Let's give them some credit and actually be clear, it is a good thing to know your scriptures. It is a good thing to stand firm on what you know from God's word. Let's never, ever, ever doubt that. But the problem was that these men allowed their view and knowledge of righteousness to get in the way of God revealing himself to the crowd. They allowed that to get in the way of God's compassion to these people. And you might think, well, this doesn't really happen in the church today, but it does. A few years ago, as I was going to visit my brother in Australia, I was looking around for some churches out there to, to go to for the two weeks we were there. And I came across a church website and thought, brilliant, this looks great. You know, everything about it checked out. And then I saw this one tiny sentence that said, we only teach from and only believe in the King James Version of the Bible. And instantly, to my shame, I judged them for that. But also in my heart, I felt, if I walk in there with my NIV Bible, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say to me? What if I took issue with them on that? And in some ways, it's a mad thing to think about, because the NIV, the King James Bible, the message, the, whatever message version you're holding in your hands is not the original Greek. Unless anyone's using the original text, it's all an interpretation. So it's madness. But they're sending the wrong statement by putting that on their website. It sends a message to say that the traditions and knowledge that we have are more important than God revealing his grace. And I think that's a challenge we have to extend to ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, do we judge first and come to the gospel? Or do we make every effort to see every person as what they are? A broken sinner that needs saving. And then do we bring them to the good news? I have to admit, if you ask me, do I see members of ISIS like that? I'd struggle. If you ask me, do I see every drug dealer as someone Jesus could treasure? I'd struggle. But you know what? In those instances, I'm the problem, not them. And we have to ask ourselves, are we the problem in the same way? Because Jesus didn't teach like that. Jesus sat and ate with sinners. He healed lepers. He drove demons out of people that no one would have anything to do with. And he spoke to Saul on that road to Damascus directly. Jesus did not judge first by saying, you don't fit the mould, you can't come in. Jesus said, you don't fit the mould, so I'm going to give my all to reshape you so that you do. Perhaps we can identify a little bit with the teachers of the law, and perhaps that makes us uncomfortable. 
But again, Jesus is in the business of changing hearts. And all we have to do is ask him to do that. The final group I want to look at this morning is the one that interests me most. This is a group I never really thought about until I started preparing this passage. This is the group of friends that brought uh, the lame man to see Jesus. Now, before I go on, I do want to clarify something. The Bible doesn't actually say that these guys were Jesus' friends. In the translations I've looked at, that word isn't used. It just says four men brought this man to him. But they must have been his friends. Because whilst we can't point to specific verses that say the word, I think you have to go back to the psyche of man to understand why I say that. You see, for four men to carry a paralysed man that they don't know or don't consider a friend to someone that can heal him and then have the perseverance to dig through a roof to get to that healer, well, that's a very unlikely situation. You could argue they knew Jesus could do these tricks and so they wanted to find the worst case possible and see if Jesus could heal him. But again, I don't think that's true. As Dav read this passage earlier, he highlighted one word really well. In verse 5, it talks about the fact that Jesus saw their faith. To take a man that far and to dig through a roof for him and to have faith that he will be healed... They had to have been this man's friends. And so I'm going to work on that premise as I walk through these next few paragraphs. We're going to assume that these are this man's friends. And if these are this man's friends, then they pose a few bold, bold challenges for us. Verse 3 tells us these four friends carried the paralysed man to Jesus. Doesn't sound significant, does it? Four men carried another man. But what that actually tells us is that they worked together. And that's important because it's easy to forget when we think about the fact that one to one evangelism is really one of the most effective ways of doing things. It's easy to forget that this is a team effort. You see, we need the prayers of our church family when we're doing one-on-one evangelism. And we need to know, actually, that if someone says to you, do you know what, I'd like to come to church this Sunday. We all need to know that from the minute they walk in that door, the person there welcomes them. To whoever's standing here doing this, to whoever's doing the kids' work, and whoever speaks to them over coffee, we need to know that that is going to shine the love of Christ. This is truly a team effort. If we don't learn on our church family, we make the job of bringing people to the Lord so much harder. But if we don't lean on the Holy Spirit, we make that job impossible. We have a team we can lean on here, but we have the Holy Spirit himself as well. So that's our first challenge from these friends Do we actually truly work together for the sake of, as it says on our website, as it says in our documents, for the sake of making Jesus known? 
Do I support you enough? Do you support me enough? Can we be praying for each other? Standing side by side in evangelism. What can we do? And you know, I think the first place you can ask yourself that, or first thing you can do is ask yourself, how could I feel more supported by this church family? Because I bet you if you're thinking I'd love more prayer, everyone else around you is thinking that too. The second challenge from our friends here is that they couldn't get the lame man through the crowd. And so what did they do? They put him down and they said, oh, I'm sorry, we'll see. No, they didn't. They, we don't know if there was a ladder or stairs. There were stairs going up to the top of roofs of houses in those days. But they got him up to the roof. Bear in mind it took four people to carry him. And then they dug. They dug through a roof. That's fantastic. It's criminal damage. But they dug through the roof of someone's house because they had to get this man to Jesus. Are you a roof breaker? When you see your friend, your family, your colleague is in need of Jesus, but something stands in the way, do you stop? Or do you say, nah, I'm going to break this roof. You see, we need to be roof breakers. And it's not easy. But we do have the support of our church family. We do have the Holy Spirit. And we need to break roofs. Remembering that we are equipped for every good work. The thing we need to challenge ourselves on really is whether we have the mindset of roof breakers. And if we don't, or if we're not sure, then we need to be praying about that. And it's important to remember that roof breaking is not just for the non-Christian. We have brothers and sisters with needs, brothers and sisters who fall away, brothers and sisters who are struggling with things. And it's our job to bring them back to Christ, isn't it? It's our job, even if they're in a really good place with God, but going through through something tough. We should be pointing them back to Christ. And if there's a roof that needs to be smashed through to do that, then we need to be roof breakers. The final challenge that these friends extend to us, we touched on already. Verse 5 says... When Jesus saw their faith, he acted. Do you have friends that you've been praying for over a number of years? Or friends that perhaps you just can't see how they were hearts, their hearts would change. You can't see how they would leap from where they are today to humbling themselves before God. It's easy, isn't it, without realising to... Let your faith wane that God is truly mighty to change lives. But we have to stay strong. You see, whether we're trying to bring a brother or sister in Christ to the, in their time of need or a non-Christian to salvation, we have to be faithful. We have to believe in what we're doing, what it means. I've worked with many, many salespeople in the course of my career. And you know what? The ones who are successful are the ones who know what they're talking about and believe in what they're selling. And the ones who aren't, they don't last particularly long at all. Now, I know we're not salespeople, thankfully, 
But if we want to be roof breakers, and if we want to work together to bring people to Christ, we have to have unflinching faith in verses like Matthew 19, verse 26. Matthew 19, verse 26 says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. These friends had faith because they knew that nothing was impossible for God. So let's look back. Who are you in this passage? I want you to put yourselves here and ask yourselves, which of those characters did you identify with most? Which of those challenges actually made you think? You see, you may be on the sidelines and not committing to Jesus like the crowd. Well, I urge you to take that step to ask Jesus into your life because Jesus as this passage tells us, has the power to forgive. Perhaps you're like the lame man. You know you need Christ's forgiveness because you know there is no chance otherwise to save yourself and to be right with God. Well, I urge you, believe. Because Jesus has the power to forgive. Perhaps you identified a little bit with the teachers of the law. Too focused on the law and not the people around you. People in need of the love of Christ. If you did, I urge you to seriously pray about this. Because the most important thing we can remember is that Jesus has the power to forgive. Or perhaps you're like the lame man's friends. And you realise that you want to be part of a team of roof breakers. And you know that you need to have faith. Well, can I remind you, and yes, I'm getting repetitive with this, Jesus does have the power to forgive.